we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And we're going to do something a little bit different this episode because usually we talk about policy issues, research we've done, research other people have done, that kind of thing. This time we're going to talk more specifically about politics or maybe more accurately legislation that's working its way through the House of Representatives. The Republicans made a big point when they were running of saying they were going to enact legislation, among other things, that was going to try to stop the president from continuing this complete disaster that he has engineered at the border. And they have started to work on that. There was a uh, bill out of the Judiciary Committee that dealt with a variety of immigration issues that was marked up, which is to say, amended and debated and bandied back and forth in committee in the Judiciary Committee last week. This week is a bill from the Homeland Security Committee, which deals with other border-related issues. And so I thought to talk about what are the various elements of these pieces of legislation, not every specific detail, because these things are going to change anyway as they wind their way through the legislature, but what are the overall outlines? What are some of the kind of headline things that they're trying to accomplish? And to do that, we have two people, center analysts, but people who between them have, oh, geez, I don't know, at this point, 30 plus years of Capitol Hill experience in actually dealing with these very questions in writing legislation, marking it up, amendments, all of that stuff. And so joining us is George Fishman, who is going to talk about the bill that came out of the Judiciary Committee, where he, in fact, was a staffer for many years. And then Andrew Arthur, Art Arthur, is going to talk about the, I don't think it'd be called a companion bill, but maybe a complementary bill or something that came out of the Homeland Security Committee. And let me just make clear that not everything we're even mentioning is going to end up in whatever final version of the bill that may or may not come to a vote on the House floor. But nonetheless, this does shine some light on what it is that congressmen, Republican congressmen particularly, think they can actually enact and at least make it through the House, even if not through the Senate and signed by the president. So let's start with the Judiciary Committee bill. And George, sort of what are the top lines here? We published a blog post on some of this. Some of these things may or may not have changed, but for those of you who want to take a look at it, it's, it'll be in the show notes. But George, could you tell us what the uh, Cliff Notes version of this bill is? Sure. Uh, thanks so much, Mark, for having me. The bill was introduced by the chairman of the Immigration Subcommittee, Tom McClintock, and Andy Biggs. They got together, introduced the bill, which has very significant immigration enforcement provisions, like the really major immigration 
enforcement legislation that's either gone through the Judiciary Committee or been enacted into law over the last decades. The interesting addition is, and because we're in the Biden administration, it not only offers tools DHS can use to try to curtail the disaster at the border, the Biden disaster that you mentioned, but also in some instances forces them to. Because they're not even using the tools they have now, frankly. They're trying to twist those tools from night to day, from day to night. Turn the Border Patrol into a welcome wagon. Exactly. Right. So that's the significant difference between the bill. It's not necessarily relying on the good faith of the administration in implementing it. It's you're going to do this because these are the only alternatives we as Congress are giving you. And it'll clear up those issues where the Supreme Court and other federal courts have been going back and forth. Does Congress mean shall when it says shall? Must the administration do this? Does it have discretion? This sure. bill this bill solves those questions. The first thing it does, which is very uh, dear to my heart, is once and for all end the abuse of the parole power, which has been ongoing for decades, but has, under the Biden administration, been used as a mechanism, as Art has documented very meticulously, to release over a million aliens into the United States. And you wrote a long piece that we'll have in the show notes, too, about sort of tracing the history of the abuse of this parole power. And just just tell people very quickly, what does parole mean? Well, it was created by Congress in 1952 to deal with those emergency situations, someone needs immediate medical attention for a life-threatening illness, they need to bring someone in to be a witness for the prosecution in a federal case, but they're not admissible, let's use this parole power. So people who couldn't get visas, but we have an important reason to let them in briefly, temporarily. Briefly, in very rare circumstances, is now one of the keystones of the Biden administration's plan to pretty much erase the meaning of illegal alien and provide a quasi-legal method for pretty much anyone. And there was, in fact, a piece in the New York Times this week that talks about these new ways of expanding legal immigration, (laughs) which is what they're talking about here, is the president basically just running a parallel immigration system that's outside the law. So anyway, we did a whole show, I think, on parole. So this limits parole to what it's intended to be, It very specifically says you can only use it for this, this, and this, organ donation, coming for a funeral, things of that nature, what Congress had in mind when Congress created it. Okay, so it took away that discretion. What else does this bill do? We're all looking forward with bated breath as to what happens on May 11th when the COVID Title 42 powers of DHS go away because the administration has declared the COVID emergency over. Right. That is what has allowed DHS to expel aliens almost immediately without hearings in most cases, which was used very effectively by the Trump administration to bring order and control back to the border. The Biden administration is still using it to some extent, even though it's been attempting to terminate it since the beginning of the administration. But May 11th is the date it goes away completely because of the end of the emergency. This bill creates something even more powerful than the Title 42 expulsions. It creates a similar power, but not based on there needing to be a national pandemic public health emergency. It's based on, and I know Art loves to talk about this, 
on if these expulsions are needed to get to operational control of the border, that in and of itself can be the basis. The administration can use the same powers it had during COVID, but without the need for a pandemic. So if the Border Patrol, for instance, is like overwhelmed in some particular area, they can just pull the trigger on this and say, no, no, we're just bouncing you back across the border. I'm sure that, you know, it would have to come from up high. Okay. But yeah. uh, Art, w- would you like to just mention what operational control means? Yeah, George, it's almost being too modest. Operational control comes from the Secure Fence Act of 2006, which was a bill that both George and I had worked on two final passage, and it passed with pretty wide bipartisan majorities in both houses. And it requires, it mandates the Secretary of Homeland Security to achieve and maintain operational control of the southwest border, which it defines as preventing the illegal entry by any terrorist, drug smuggler, or other alien into the United States illegally. Now, of course, we know that under the Biden administration, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has wildly failed to satisfy that standard. He's attempted to change it and say it needs a lens of reasonableness, whatever that means, or it means using all of the tools that you have in order to attempt to gain control of the number of illegal migrants at the southwest border, which leads me to a pretty important provision that's in the House Homeland Security Bill, and that one's introduced by Dr. Mark Green, Chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. It requires the Biden administration to complete the fencing system at the southwest border. It's important to note, Mark, that when we talk about the fencing system, we're not talking about a wall because it's really a fence. But the fencing system is so much more than just, you know, the slats that are set up along the southwest border. It's the cameras, it's the lights, it's the all-weather roads that Border Patrol agents can access, and it's fiber optic cable along the border that agents in remote areas of the border can use to communicate with one another. When the Biden administration started, in fact, the day the Biden administration started, the president issued an executive order that paused all border wall construction. Donald Trump made border walls a big part of his campaign in 2016. He really didn't mention it much in 2020, but that turned the Biden administration against the very concept of any border wall system. And so it stopped. And if you go down to the southwest border today, you will see large swaths of the border where there are fence panels stacked up 10 high, gravel on the side of the road, light poles that aren't hooked up or are only partially constructed. All of that was done by the Biden administration. So as Alejandro Mayorkas is saying that operational control means using all your uh, resources, he's not even satisfying that watered down version of operational control because he's not using the resources Congress has given him about $2.7 million in order to secure the Southwest, uh, $2.7 billion. billion. I forgot we're in Washington to secure the Southwest border. Yeah, the $2.7 million will get you a wrench in a toilet seat out of the Pentagon. So I want to finish with George going over what's in the judiciary bill, and then we'll come back to the Homeland bill. So just again, I don't want to go through every detail, but it limits the president's power to waive illegal aliens into the United States under parole. It creates a Title 42-like authority that's not dependent on people getting the flu. What are two or three other 
top things in that version, that bill? Well, sure. Mark, the next big thing is the mandatory detention. The issue that went up to the Supreme Court, Congress in 1996, and I was there, mandated essentially aliens coming to the U.S. at ports of entry, not at ports of entry, without documents coming here illegally had to be detained, must, shall be detained. and Until they're either allowed to stay through some process or they're sent home. Exactly. Right. Or, or sent to a third country. And the Biden administration, uh, through abuse of parole and other authorities, has totally ignored that requirement. Uh, Art has documented what the release of uh, what was it, is it two million people yeah, now? More than two million people. By, now, by the right. Biden administration, who Congress said must be detained. Now, obviously, sometimes their resource issues with detention. Of course, as Art has pointed out a number of times, the Biden administration keeps asking for less money and less money from Congress for detention. So it's, uh, yeah, you know, when they argue, oh, woe is us, we right. don't have any money. Well, uh, why is that? The judge in Florida had said it's like the uh, man who kills his parents and then asks for mercy because he's an orphan. Exactly. Exactly. And there was another 96 provision allowing aliens apprehended trying to come across a land border to be returned to the country from which they came, generally Mexico or Canada, pending their removal proceedings. Remain in Mexico. Remain in Mexico. Is what it turned into. Yeah. And which before the COVID emergency was the single most effective tool the Trump administration had to bring control to the border. That's something else Biden campaigned on terminating, has tried to terminate ever since. So if the new bill, what is it going to do to mandate detention since it's already mandated? Just add more adjectives and adverbs to the language? It actually does something very effective, not okay. that. If you remember, a number of states, Texas, et cetera, sued the Biden administration right. saying under federal statute, if you have that mandate to detain, if you can't do it, your only option, the administration is to use return to Mexico. Mm -hmm. That's the alternative Congress gave you when you didn't have enough resources for whatever reason. Right. Went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled, well, no, you never have to use return to Mexico. It says may in the statute. It, it, it's always discretionary. Okay. So what this provision does is say, if you cannot, do not, will not, don't want to detain aliens apprehended, as Congress told you to, you must send them out of the country. You must use MPP. So it responds to the Supreme Court and making it very clear they must use MPP. My question here is, and you know, this is just what would happen with if this were to pass, if an administration like we have now just calls up the Mexican government on a private cell phone so you can't, you know, so they, there's no record of it and tells them, Please refuse to accept people so that we can let them go into the United States. What can they do about it then? In other words, their hands are tied because Mexico is its own country and they, they, they can refuse. My belief is the Biden administration has already made those phone oh, of calls. Of course, of course. And Mexico was very cooperative with return to Mexico under the Trump administration. No, no, no I get all of that. But my point is that still depends on who's president because if – they don't want to do it. They can still find a way not to do it. And then, you know, they're going to say, look, our hands are tied. We have to let them all go. I'm sure they will try that. And I would expect states such as Texas 
to immediately go to federal court and say they're acting with unclean hands, they're acting in bad faith, they're doing exactly what you're you're saying they're doing. Right. Therefore, they have to detain them, and okay. we'll we'll see who wins. Yeah. Uh, no, I understand. And, of course, before the case is completed, there'll be another million illegal aliens the administration will let in. Okay. Is there another one or two top things before we switch over to Art? I cannot fail to mention E-Verify, the, okay. the provision enacted into law by Lamar Smith and Alan Simpson in 1996 to finally have an effective employer sanction system to prevent illegal aliens from getting jobs in the U.S. by dealing with the fraudulent document problem, which has been the Achilles heel of employer sanctions ever since 1986, and it would make it mandatory for all employers. and To use the online E-Verify system, yeah. which exists now, but it's voluntary still. Yeah, it's well, mandatory it's, in some cases, some, yes, but right. generally voluntary. And one of the amazing things at the Judiciary Committee markup was making such a system mandatory back when it was created and even years later was extremely controversial among Republicans. In fact, in 1996 itself, Mr. Smith got mandatory E-Verify through the Judiciary Committee, beating an amendment to strip it. The amendment lost 15 to 17. Then to get the bill onto the floor, he had to compromise and make it voluntary right. with the promise of a vote on an amendment to bring it back to mandatory on the floor. That was Mr. Gallagher's amendment. The amendment got 86 votes. In favor it of failed it. overwhelmingly. Yeah, yeah failed yeah. overwhelmingly, Republicans and Democrats. Thus, we go to now, in the markup, only one Republican voiced the sort of opposition to mandatory E-Verify that was such a, an issue decades ago. So that does, that does highlight how the Republican Party kind of has evolved. It is not as much a mouthpiece for business lobbyists as it used to be. Yeah, I think there are a lot of members, especially on the Judiciary Committee, more ideologically focused and want the border secured. And they don't mind if they have to go against big money interests in order to get done what they think is in the uh, okay. interests of the country. Interesting. So, Art, let's go over to you. Now, you had mentioned this is now this is a separate bill coming out of the Homeland Security Committee. And you would discuss the part where it mandates completion of the wall system. What else is in that bill, sort of, again, top line measures? And then if you or both of you guys could talk about, are these going to be kind of glued together, grafted onto each other or something, or will they have two separate bills to vote on? It seems like they're pretty related and should be one thing. But anyway, go ahead, Art. Thank you, Mark. And the judiciary bill is a whole lot sexier, if you would, <laughs> than the Homeland Security bill, because the Homeland Security bill actually deals with things that are within Homeland Security's jurisdiction. When it comes to immigration, most immigration issues, things having to do with asylum and detention and interior enforcement are strictly within the jurisdiction of the Judiciary Committee. However, under Rule X or Rule 10 of the House Rules, the House Homeland Security Committee actually does have jurisdiction over personnel within DHS. Okay. And one key component of the House Homeland Security bill is that it boosts the number of Border Patrol agents at the southwest border to 22,000. It's still probably not enough because right now there are fewer than 17,000 Border Patrol agents who are assigned to the southwest border. That doesn't include the ones who were 
detailed from the northern border, which is also grievously undermanned, but it would definitely boost that number up. And it's important to you know, put that border into context. The border is 1,954 miles long, and Border Patrol agents work 50-hour shifts, which means at any given time, there are only about 5,600 Border Patrol agents at the southwest border. Again, to not only secure that 1,954-mile border, but also to apprehend, process, transport, detain, and all too often release migrants. So boosting the number of Border Patrol agents at the southwest border is absolutely key. All right. If I could just interject here, though, remember that just to be clear, the bill isn't boosting the number of agents. It's authorizing them to boost the number of agents. They still have to go out and try to find 5,000 extra people to join the Border Patrol. And people are, I mean, it's hemorrhaging staff because it's now they're Walmart greeters basically at the border, ushering illegal aliens into the United States. So, I mean, I'm not saying this is a bad idea or anything, but it's one of those things that's, you know, it's easier said than done. I mean, years ago, I think it was in the 80s in Washington, the the Metropolitan Police Department, the Washington, D.C. City Police, you know, had this crash hiring initiative. And so what they ended up doing was lowering standards and they ended up hiring drug dealers as police officers and it really kind of blew up in their face. So there were a number of, you know, high profile incidents with the MPD, certainly then. And this is a very ambitious goal, right. basically to get 5,000 more Border Patrol agents at the southwest border. They include incentives in there, more money and, you know, rejigger the hiring program a little bit so that it makes it an almost achievable goal. But yeah, it's really all going to come down to the enthusiasm of individuals who join the Border Patrol and go to places like Ajo, Arizona, which truly is in the middle of nowhere. And also, you know, to get the sort of candidates who would want to do this job. It's key. And, you know, it's a very good point. But contrast this with what the Biden administration has proposed doing. In fact, what they're crowing about, you know, you actually hear Alejandro Mayorkas talk proudly about how the Biden administration wants to increase the number of Border Patrol agents by 350. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's that's ridiculous. And in fact, it's almost offensive to anybody who cares about Border Patrol and border security. Because that last 350, that'll do it. You know, 349, no, the border crisis will continue. But 350, that'll solve the whole thing down there, apparently. Yeah, no, absolutely. So kudos to the House Homeland Security for recognizing that this is a vulnerability. And again, you know, most of the stuff in the House Homeland Security Committee bill is good government stuff, the kind of stuff that you would want to do if you want to put a framework in place to actually secure the border. And, you know, going to your point and many points that George had made, the most important aspect of this is a willingness by the administration to actually enforce the law. Right now, we don't have that. There are certain uh, provisions, as George detailed in the House Judiciary Committee bill, that will make it easier to do that. But we've also seen the Biden administration take a look at the INA as it's written and tear it up, which makes it all the more exceptional that Vice President Harris a week ago talked about how the Trump administration had dismantled the immigration system in the United States. I always say that, you know, that is what psychologists call deflection, blaming other people for what you've done yourself. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, the real action is going to take place in these bills, but it's also going to take place in the appropriations bill for FY 2024. As George had noted, the Biden administration wants to cut the number of detention beds from 32,000 down to 25,000. It's also going to come in the course of a border supplemental. George referenced the fact that Title 42 is expected to end on May the 11th. I'm actually going to be down at the border on that day. But the administration is already pushing forward a number of things that it's going to try and do to handle the catastrophe that's going to follow in that wake. But that's going to require more money from Congress. And when they come back to Congress, that's going to be the opportunity for Republicans and Democrats in both the upper and lower chambers to start to demand accountability from the administration about what's going on at the Southwest border. When you listen to Alejandro Mayorkas, he refuses to call it even a crisis. He calls it a significant challenge, but it's plainly not. It's not even a a crisis. It's a disaster bordering on a fiasco. So uh, what you're talking about is the the one power Congress still is interested in occasionally exercising is the power of the purse and using the control over appropriations, over money, to try to shift the administration's stance on this. this, is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's important for the listeners to understand. I think that they assume that the United States government has one big pile of money and you sort of take the money that you need out of that. The executive branch doesn't have the ability to spend money for anything other than what Congress has appropriated that money for. So even if they have $4 billion or $400 billion sitting in an account, until Congress says they can spend the money for that purpose, they can't. And if the administration attempts to spend money for something that Congress hasn't appropriated for, they violate what's called the Anti-Deficiency Act. And the, the Anti-Deficiency Act has real teeth. There are criminal penalties that attach to that. Right. And, you know, we, we've already seen pseudo-political prosecutions in this country. I can imagine what you know, the attorney general for President Nikki Haley or, you know, President Ron DeSantis or President Donald Trump, part two, would do to those administration officials if they simply bypass or blow off what Congress has said. Right. So putting all these bills together, Mark, it's important to understand they do a lot of good things. If they pass, that's a big if, because it's going to have to get past the Senate. Right. But even with the laws we have already, Congress's checkbook is going to be the real backstop to all of what's going on at the border if it uses the checkbook. Right. So as far as the substance of these two bills, I'm probably oversimplifying here, but in a sense, maybe a way to think about it is the Judiciary Committee bill makes some policy changes, whereas the Homeland Security bill makes sort of more technical kind of plumbing and management changes. Is that sort of a fair way maybe of simplifying what the two bills do? Yeah, no, that's exactly, that's probably the best way to describe it. So as far as policy goes, and this is something that would the Judiciary Committee deals with, is there's no interior enforcement measures in here, right? I mean, there is E-Verify, which matters, because reducing the magnet makes it less likely people will try to jump the border. But there's a lot of interior enforcement measures that are probably necessary that are not included in this bill, right? You're right. I mean, E-Verify, extremely important. But it is a border-focused bill, not right. an, not an interior-focused bill. And we used to talk in the past about how to deal with the multi-million person, the illegal alien population 
in the United States that's already here. That's right. already here. And, and as you've indicated, most likely uh, Democrats are just going to say everyone who's been allowed to enter on a red carpet by the Biden administration, it would be you know unfair, impossible to remove them. E-verify by actually allowing attrition through enforcement by making it extremely difficult to get jobs, which is why most illegal aliens come to the U.S. in the first place, is an extremely important interior enforcement measure. But there are many others which aren't in here. Nothing about sanctuary cities. I mean, I'm not trying to run down the bill. I'm just trying to make clear to people what is and is not there. Nothing about sanctuary cities and deportation and what have you. I believe that that is deliberate because the committees, the House leadership can attempt to eat the entire dinosaur all at once, or alternatively, it can eat it bite by bite. Right. First, you patch the boat, then you bail the boat. Right. So, you know, depending on where this bill goes, expect to see that bailing the boat bill come next. I don't expect this bill to become law for the simple fact the Democrats control the United States Senate, but I do think it would be an extremely momentous event if this bill were were to pass the House. Right. Uh, Republicans have a 222 to 213 majority in the House. Assuming no Democrats vote for the bill, Republicans could only lose four members on this vote or else it could not pass right. in the House. Were Republican leadership to pull out all the stops to get this passed in the House, which, believe me, they haven't done in the past on similar pieces of legislation, which could have passed had they done it, right. it will send the message to everyone, Republicans, Democrats, the American public, the smugglers, everyone, that as soon as the political environment, the elected officials in the future after the next election might be in a position to actually enact this sort of legislation, it could actually get enacted. Right. Interesting. And actually, to that end, and this is more a political question, though it relates to the legislation, is Yes, the Democrats control the Senate by one seat, although Senator Feinstein is still there. I don't know if she's voting. But anyway, in any case, May 11th is coming up. And as I understand, they're trying to maybe get a vote on the floor on the judiciary, either one or both of these bills or combined or whatever before then. If the end of Title 42 on May 11th results in a bad enough scenario at the border, is it at least possible that Demo- there might be some Democrats willing to go for it or even choose not to filibuster it so it could pass with 51 votes, you know, with one, two or three Democrats voting yes? I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that a black swan event, and quite frankly, the end of Title 42 is hardly a black swan event, but it would be enough to actually force some Democrats, particularly in the Senate, to vote in favor of this bill. Keep in mind that Democrats are defending a whole lot more seats in the Senate in the 2024 elections. Right. And that includes John Tester in Montana, a pretty red state, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, a ruby red state, and Sherrod Brown in Ohio, right. who is in a state that has definitely skewed more Republican of late. So this is a big vulnerability. You might actually see powerful members like Tester Manchin and Brown force a vote before the Senate on this bill or some iteration of it, depending on how bad things get at the southwest border. And I can tell you right now, Mark, 
I think they're going to get really bad then. Right, right. And just one question. Both you guys were in the House, so you may not know how it works in the Senate, but you know more about it than I do. If the 60-vote threshold for overcoming a filibuster, is that required or can the majority decide not to filibuster? In other words, could Schumer decide without an announcement that he is going to allow the bill to pass with 51 votes rather than mandate a 60? You see what I mean? In other words, is the 60-vote thing kind of automatic or can one party or another say, yeah, we're not going to push that? Art, correct me if, if I'm wrong. I believe it's in the Senate rules. The Senate rules could be changed with a simple majority vote. You know, and there have been times in the past where, you know, Democrats have threatened, you know, you don't let this nominee go through. You don't let this bill go through. We'll just get rid of the filibuster ourselves by changing the Senate rules. No, but what I mean is the way I understand it, I may be wrong here. The filibuster can be invoked if you want to invoke it. Whereas my point here is, could the Democrats decide without, just among themselves, we're not going to filibuster this, and therefore everybody could vote against it except, you know, two Democrats, and because of that, it could pass so that they would still say they're against it, but they wouldn't filibuster it. Do you see what I mean? I don't know if that's possible. That's kind of what I'm asking. Yeah, so what we're really talking about here is a cloture vote. A cloture vote requires 60 votes in the Senate. And cloture basically ends debate on the question and sends it to the floor. So passage doesn't require 60 votes, but that cloture vote does. I see. Yeah. And the Democrats could, you know, fairly reasonably say, look, let's just put this to a vote. And it would almost make sense for Schumer to allow that to happen because, you know, Tester and Manchin and Brown could all say, yeah, no, we, you know, we agree that something needs to be done at the border and vote for this. And, you know, hopefully uh, from Schumer's perspective, still defeated. I see. Right. That's definitely possible. Oh, I see what you mean. In other words, the vulnerable Democrat senators could vote yes on cloture so that they could say they wanted to proceed on the bill, but the cloture motion would fail, so there would never be a vote on the actual bill. Exactly. We're getting a little too much in the weeds here, I think, for people. But Well, there's actually a more important point, Mark. Yeah. So budget bills don't require that. Right. And, you know, if this goes down to a border supplemental bill, they could easily pass some or all of this on that supplemental bill, depending on how much pressure the Biden administration has and how hard the Republicans want to fight. I see. So in other words, use a funding bill as the vehicle for some or all of what's in these two bills we're talking about. George? Well, except there is the bird rule. Well, I mean, let's not, we don't want to, yeah, yeah, we don't want to get, we don't want to get into it too much. We don't want to be invoking (laughs) former Klansmen. So anyway, the point is these two bills are working their way through Congress, through the, uh, this is on the House side. It's likely one or both or some version of the two put together will end up coming up for a vote on the House floor. We don't know what's going to happen there. I would assume they wouldn't bring it up unless they knew it was going to pass, but who knows how these things work out. And we will keep following this. George Fishman and Art Arthur are our Hill Whisperers, having worked, as I said, for decades on the Hill. And we will probably have them back. And in fact, I'd like to have the two of you guys back just to do a sort of George and Art comedy show at some point, because... uh, Well, Mark, could I mention that 
Art does have one issue with the Judiciary Committee bill. Which is? He didn't bring up. Uh, it's titled the Border Security and, and Enforcement Act. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Art was pushing it for it to be called the America Responds to Terrorism Bill Act, oh, yeah. the Art Act, <laughs> yes, and yeah. is very upset <laughs> That that did not occur. Yeah. See, this is that why was, that was my original title for the Patriot Act, which is why George brings it up until uh, smart people put the uh, letters together and realized what it was. This is why I want to have you guys do a kind of a comedy hour or comedy half hour at some point. But in the meantime, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you, George. Thank you, Art. And we will have links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes, and we will undoubtedly be revisiting this issue again. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. And finally, I just wanted to play a few seconds of audio from a congressional debate this week. This is Congresswoman Jayapal, Democrat, who was opposing the immigration bill that we just talked about. This country needs immigrants to survive. Immigrants pick the food we eat, rebuild our communities after climate disasters, help construct our infrastructure, power our small business economy, clean our homes, and look after the most precious in our families, our children and our elders. Notice she says the United States needs immigrants to survive. Not that it could be beneficial. Uh, obviously, every policy has pluses and minuses. Some people win, some people lose needs it to survive. And what really struck me is at the end saying that immigrants clean our homes and care for our children, our elderly. I was a little rude in responding to that on Twitter, but it really is this broad elite perspective. She's a Democrat, but Republicans have said the same thing, that Americans shouldn't be expected to clean their own homes or raise their own children. Or, or even produce their own food. Not that long ago, when uh, Michael Bloomberg was mayor of New York, and Bloomberg is a big promoter of unlimited immigration, he said to a reporter in discussing this, uh, immigrants are the ones who take care of the greens at my golf club. Uh, don't they do it at yours? <laughs> it was really an incredibly out-of-touch bubble comment from a billionaire. And even earlier than that, Karl Rove, who was George W. Bush's kind of political Svengali, said to a group of congressional wives in talking about immigration, this is the George W. Bush amnesty push was going on, and he said, in justifying increased immigration, he said, I don't want my kid making beds in Las Vegas or packing tomatoes, something like that. He had said something like that several times. I wrote about it at the time in National Review, and it actually got a response from the White House. The press secretary of the press office said, well, you know, he didn't really, what he really meant was something or other. But what this highlights is that our leadership classes, Republicans and Democrats, do see immigration in a way that's similar to the Emirates in the Persian Gulf, where in, you know, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, the actual citizens there don't do much work. All the actual work, whatever it is, is done by foreigners that are imported. And this is, you know, if you want to be Saudi Arabia, well, then maybe that's a way to organize your society. But a republic of citizens like ours aspires to be should not be seeing immigration as a way of avoiding cleaning our own houses or mowing our own lawns. 
again, I was kind of rude in, on Twitter to Congressman Jayapal, but there is no question that one of the core drivers of support for loose enforcement and high levels of immigration among our leadership class is this idea that nobody they know mows their lawn, so obviously we need to import foreigners to do it. And the more we move in that direction, a direction that is only possible because of our bad immigration policies, the farther away we move from being a republic of equal citizens. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, your host, director of the Center for Immigration Studies, and I hope you will tune in next week. <music>